0: We are still in our sermon series on Colossians today, and I want to start with a question. Does this phrase sound familiar to you? My life is not where I thought it would be. My life is not where I thought it would be. You know, I found myself saying this to my husband, Alex, on Monday. You know, we take Mondays off, it's our Sabbath. And I was sitting on the couch and he was sitting on our armchair and I'm journaling and I'm praying and oftentimes it's like my ugliest self comes out on my day off because I'm like realizing all the things that I've been suppressing throughout the week and it's like, oh, that's gross, oh, that's ugly, why am I feeling this way? And as I was sitting on the couch, my prevailing thought was my life is just just not where I thought it would be. And I knew why I had that thought. See, Alex and I have been doing just the like very, very first steps of looking at what it would be like to buy a home. And I was sitting there in my living room just so annoyed that at almost 28 years of age, I didn't own a home, which is so silly, right? Because who says I have to own a home? No one other than myself, right? But in that moment, for some reason, I was so, dissatisfied with the place that I was at, the expectations that I had had versus the reality that I was living in. My life is just not what I thought it would be. You know, I think many of us feel this way on like a soul level, right? Whether it was as a result of a pandemic and our whole life was upended, we had to delay, whether it was a wedding or we delayed our graduation or schooling didn't turn out the way we thought it would be. Uh, Maybe it's just the result of life circumstances. You had a death in the family that you weren't anticipating. You had a job change and you're sitting there and you're thinking, I just didn't think it would be like this. I thought at this point in my life I would be married. I thought at this point in my life I would have some sort of financial security. I thought at this point in my life you fill in the blank, right? Not only do we regularly experience this sensation in our own life, but I think we also experience it within our spiritual life too. As we talked about several several weeks ago, spiritual growth can feel really hard sometimes, right? Spiritual maturity can feel hard. And when we're sitting in the midst of our faith and our life, and we think, you know, I thought I would have gotten over this sin, or I thought this habit would be gone from my life at this point, or I thought I wouldn't continue to feel this way this far in my faith journey, And it's in those difficult moments that it's really hard not to doubt Jesus, right? Because if Jesus really saved me, if he really resurrected me, if he really redeemed me, why do I continue to do the same things over and over and over again? Why can't I move past this bad habit? Why can't I stop doing the thing I don't want to do? Why do I keep coming back to my sin over and over and over again? The question that I often feel and ask myself is why haven't I experienced true and lasting transformation in my life? Why don't I feel like I've experienced true and lasting transformation? And this is the question that we are going to answer today and that Paul has a little bit to say about in Colossians. So today we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 through 10 and we've been asking you to keep a few different things in mind when it comes to our sermon series on the on Colossians. And the first one is that this letter was written to a young church. And you know, I love this because we are a young church, right? We started this church about 9-10 months ago. And and similar to the Colossae people, we are in the midst of a lot of cultural and societal changes. And as a young church moving into spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, we are feeling the pressures of those cultural and societal changes all the time. And so similar to the people of Colossae, right, we very much could be on the receiving end of this letter by Paul. So I love that. This series is so good for this moment that we find ourselves in. The second thing that we've asked you to keep in mind is that Christ began a new kingdom. Christ began a new kingdom. You know, Justin talked a lot about this last week as he unpacked Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. You know, the idea of kingdom is one that's a little bit foreign to our current cultural context, right? We live in the United States, and so we don't necessarily have a king or a queen. We're not ruled by a dictatorship, uh, and yet, we do pledge allegiance to the United States, right? And very much what Paul and Jesus is asking us to do here is say, I renounce my allegiance to the powers of this world, and I give my allegiance over to Jesus. He He is my new king and thus I live in a new kingdom and I'm going to have to act different. I'm going to have to learn a new way. But as Justin outlined last week, sometimes living in that new kingdom can feel really hard. And we find ourselves going back to that old kingdom or that old way of living that we said we lived in no more. Which leads us to our third point. And that is that spiritual maturity is learning to live in that new kingdom. And as we've talked about over and over again, spiritual maturity, a lot of the times, or spiritual growth feels kind of hard, right? And that's where we find ourselves in our passage today. You know, Paul has spent the first half of Colossians really delving into and painting this picture for what life in the new kingdom looks like. And he invites us into that story. He paints that picture. He invites us to sit in that story. And then he spends the second half of Colossians telling us practically what it looks like to live in that new kingdom. It's what scholars call the practical exhortation, and that's what we're getting into to in chapters three and part of four. And for those of you in the room that like the practice or the praxis of things, this is like going to be your section, okay? So to begin this practical exhortation, Paul outlines two lists of sins, and then he ends with this climactic summative statement as to what we are to do with those sins. He says in verse five, Uh, He outlines what I'm going to call the sins of desire, okay? Sins of desire. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, even evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness could also be, uh, you could use the word greed here, okay? So it's that idea of of wanting more, constantly wanting more. In verse 8, he outlined a second list for us, and that's what I'm going to call the sins against communion. Okay, so these are sins that we perpetrate against one another. And he says, Now you must put them all away. So you must put also these sins to death anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I find it really interesting that Paul waits until he's halfway through the letter to give us a bunch of do's and don'ts. Like, I don't know about you, but when I think about spiritual growth or maturity, I tend to think about all the things I should do and then all the things I shouldn't do, right? That's what we think of. That's how we're parented, right? As kids, we've got a list of rules that we're supposed to do, a list of things that we're not supposed to do, and that's how we grow. That's how we mature, right? Except for I think, Paul knew something that I often forget. And that is that rules do not compel people to act. Stories do. Rules don't compel people to act. Stories do. That's why I think Paul spends the first two chapters, so half of the whole letter of Colossians, outlining the story of Jesus and saying, you fit right in that story. He says, what happened to Jesus has happened and is happening to you. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, that we died with Christ, that we're being resurrected with Christ, and that then we will return with Christ. He situates us in the story of Jesus and says, what Jesus did, you are doing and have done. And being that we're situated in this story of Jesus, Paul instructs us to put to death sins of desire and sins against community, and in doing so, be raised to life with Christ. For he says, you have died past tense to these sins just as Jesus died on the cross and you're being resurrected or raised to life in this new kingdom just as Jesus was resurrected. But I find it hard when we're talking about sins to really think through, what does it mean to put to death sin, right? Like, how do I permanently put it down in that grief? N.T. Wright says it this way, and I'm going to quote him a lot because he has a fabulous commentary on Colossians. But he says it this way, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. That makes me think of um, if you lust after someone, right? Right. Poke out your eyes, right? Cut off your hand. Whatever it takes, you must put to death. Cut off the proverbial lines of supply. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than they have have them eventually destroy you. So it's not just these obvious sins that Paul says you have to put to death. You have to cut off before they destroy you. It's also sins that aren't so obvious. Sins that we tend to gloss over. That we think are just, eh, maybe those are okay. Right? It's those sins of anger. Those sins of malice. When we say something to someone that we probably shouldn't have said. When we act in anger towards someone... And Paul says, these also have to be put to death as you are put to death and then raised back into Christ. N.T. Wright says this in regards to these sins against community. He says, one cannot always prevent angry or hateful thoughts from springing into your head, but they should be dealt with firmly before they turn into words. It is not healthy, as it sometimes is supposed, to allow such thoughts to find expression. It is certainly healthy to recognize and face up to one's own anger and frustration and to search for proper and creative ways of dealing with it. And here's the key part of this quote. But words do not merely convey information or let off steam. They change situations and relationships. And they often do so irrevocably. Can't turn back time. They can wound as well as heal. And like plants, wild plants blown by the wind, hateful words can scatter their seeds far and wide, giving birth to more anger wherever they land. This is why Paul says, sins against community are just as serious as sins from desire. And those you must put to death as well. You know, I think there has been a lot of hateful seeds sprinkled and planted in 2020 and 2021. In fact, it may be among some of the most common and worst sins of our time period. Not only did many of us witness this type of behavior or were on the receiving end of it, but I'd like to say and garner and postulate that maybe some of us, including myself, perpetuated some of these seeds. Whether we participated in this type of talk regarding a political party, an ethnic group, or maybe even a denomination or a church... I think it can be said that several of us at one point in time participated in hate speech that changed relationships in our life irrevocably. And Paul says that type of speech must be put to death. They don't belong in that resurrected life. They don't belong in the kingdom of Jesus. They belong in the grave. And with that, after detailing all of these things, these behaviors, these practices that have to be put to death to participate in the story of Jesus, Paul, in a genius way, ends these lists with a summative statement in verse 9 and verse 10. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." A few things to notice about this verse, uh, these two verses. The first one is that Paul summarizes everything he's just talked about in the preceding verses with one line. Do not lie to one another. Remember, last week, Justin Roberts pointed to Genesis 3, verse 1 through 10, as the origins of sin. In reading the story of Adam and Eve, we're reminded that the enemy likes to attack us through our mind, through lies. And Jesus says, particularly about these lies and this enemy attack in John chapter 8, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. That's your old self. That's who you belonged to prior to belonging to Christ. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the father of lies. See, all of these sins that we've talked about, these sins of desire, these sins against community, boil down to one thing. And that is lies that we believe about ourselves, about one another and lies that we communicate to those around us. Author and pastor John Mark Homer puts it this way, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies, and liberate them with the weapon of truth. See, our old selves belong to the father of lies, and our new selves belong to the father of truth, Jesus. Jesus. Our new selves are rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul says, being that you have died with Christ, do not lie. Put off that old self that belongs to the father of lies and its sinful practices and be resurrected into the new life of Christ, being renewed to look more and more like your creator Jesus every single day. And then... The next item of note that Paul does, he uses this clothing metaphor. And this clothing metaphor, this putting on and this putting off that Paul talks about here is really significant. In um, the time period that Paul would have been writing, this clothing, similar to today, had a status symbol associated with it. It was a little bit more extreme in that particular day in that your actual clothes could be an indicator of the people group or the kingdom that you belong to. And so when Paul says, put off and put on, he's literally saying, take off the clothes of the old kingdom and put on the clothes of the new kingdom that you find yourself in Jesus Christ. You know, this idea of clothing is often a common theme in resurrection stories. We see in the story of Lazarus, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the first thing he says is unbind him. Community help take off his old burial clothes. Take those things off. When Jesus himself is resurrected, have you ever noticed that his burial clothes were left behind? Jesus sheds his burial clothes and leaves them in the grave. Quick side note, this week, I started thinking about the fact that potentially Jesus could have like walked out of the grave naked, although I'm sure the angels would have worked to clothe him somehow. But that, that, that thought came in my mind this week. But that's the thing, right? Jesus takes off his burial clothes. They belong to death. Clothed in new clothes. And in using this metaphor here, Paul is once again reminding us to leave our death clothes behind, for we have been raised to life. In other words, those sins that have been put to death are old clothes, and we must cast them aside to make room for the new clothes that we will don in this new kingdom. This clothing metaphor reminds me of uh, a book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Any any Narnia fans out there? Yes, some of you just like had a giddy excitement. Jack Keeley is not here today, and he is like the biggest Narnia fan ever, so I'm a little bummed about that, but it's okay. Uh, But in this book, there is a boy named Eustace. And he lets his greed consume him. And as a result, he actually turns into a dragon, which some of you are like, I would turn into a dragon. But this was not like a good experience for Eustace. He did not want to be a dragon. He was a very proper boy. And he just wanted to be a boy again. And he's sitting there on one lonely night when he's all by himself, crying, hurt, upset, he doesn't know how to become a boy again. And he sees this giant lion walking towards him. And those that are familiar with the series know that this lion is Aslan. And this lion starts to walk towards him. And he says to him, I want you to come follow me to a well. And I'm going to have you undress yourself and jump into the water. And Eustace, the dragon, is thinking, How am I going to undress myself? I don't have clothes on right now, right? And then he realizes, Wait a second, dragons have skins like snakes do. And so these scales, these can be pulled off, so he starts to scratch himself, He starts to try to get this skin off, and he realizes, oh, I can peel off a layer of my dragon skin before I hop into this water, so he peels off this layer of dragon skin and begins to step his foot in the water, and he looks down at his reflection and he realizes, my skin looks just like it did. He goes back, he tries to take off more, peel off more layers of his dragon skin, and every single time he does, he looks at his reflection in the water and realizes, I look exactly like I was. And finally, Eustace looks at the lion, and the lion says, you will have to let me undress you. And although he was very afraid of the lion's claws, he was desperate and Eustace says the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought had gone right into my heart and he began pulling off my skin it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of the stuff peeling off Once the lion peeled all of Eustace's skin off, he threw him into the water, and in that moment, Eustace knew he was a boy again. See, Eustace had to come to the realization that he was unable to rid himself of his dragon skin or his repeated patterns of greed. Because remember, the dragon skin represented the greed in Eustace's life. He was unable to shed the patterns of greed that had consumed him. The only one that could was the lion. And similarly, are we not the ones that cannot take off our own filthy clothes, right? Jesus is the one that does that. We are not the ones that put on those new clothes of the kingdom. Jesus is the one that dresses us. And Jesus is the only one that can properly declothe and reclothe us. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not clothe you? I don't know about you, but after reading Eustace's story, I want to have that full transformation. I want that lion to painfully come and tear off those layers. But if I'm being really honest, I tend to look down at my own skin again and see the old layers there over and over and over again. And that begs the question, why do I look down and continue to see my old clothes when Jesus said he has put new ones on me? Why do I finally think I've mastered my anger and frustrations and I lash out all over again? Why do I finally think I've forgiven a friend and then that bitterness creeps back into my heart? Why do I think I finally overcome my frustration towards a political leader, a church, a denomination, or any sort of church leader, and then I see something on Instagram, and all of a sudden I'm angry again? Why? Why do I continue to feel like I live in old clothes when Jesus has said, you have new ones? Inevitably, I'm consistently left with the question, why does real and lasting transformation feel so difficult and unattainable even in my own life? And that's the question this week that I've been working to answer. And I think the answer is threefold. The first is that we live in the already but not yet. The second is that we focus too much on our old clothes. And the third is that we forget to take the long view. And I'm gonna spend some time unpacking each of these three. But I do just want to briefly say, although these answers are not uh, completely satisfactory in our moments of frustration, I do think that they can provide a framework or parameters for us to begin dealing with that transformation frustration. And so first, We live in the already, but not yet. So transformation feels difficult because we live in the already, but not yet. Notice Paul in verse 1 uses the past tense when he says, If you then have been raised, past tense, with Christ. Then notice in verse 10, he says our new self is being renewed in knowledge. Present future tense, right? So past tense, we've been able to die to self and have new clothes, but present future tense, we're still being clothed. We have both shed our old clothes and are being clothed all at the same time. We have been clothed past tense and are continuing to be clothed present tense. This idea focuses on the concept of the already but not yet. This idea that Jesus' kingdom is already here but also not yet fully here. And we are presently called to live in that kingdom through Jesus' example on earth but waiting also for the full revelation of his kingdom in his return. And you as much beauty and real wonderful uh, admiration and pursuit that comes from wanting to be more like Jesus every day in the day-to-day right now. It's also really frustrating to live in that in-between tension. It's not fun. In the words of Pastor Ashley Anderson from Church of the City, New York, she says this, As people, our souls are tethered to the story or the kingdom of Jesus like a rubber band. And the further we get from that story, the more tension we feel. And being that we live in the in-between, there are constantly things that belong to death, those old clothes that keep pulling us from that kingdom citizenship. Paraphrasing the author and professor Todd Bullsinger, we live in a holy Saturday moment. The disciples physically experienced that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and we are physically experiencing and living in the in-between moment between Jesus's ascension to heaven and his eventual return. We live in the in-between, in the already but the not yet. Therefore, part of this reason transformation feels so difficult is because we've already been clothed in new clothes, but we still live in a world filled with old clothes. We are in the already but not yet kingdom of Jesus. The second reason why this transformation feels so difficult is we tend to have the bad habit of focusing on our old clothes. So I gave a shout out to our Narnia friends and our Narnia fans out there, but now we're going to go the other extreme, Harry Potter, am I right? Okay, so I personally love Harry Potter. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. I didn't discover it until adulthood. And in the Harry Potter series, specifically in Order of the Phoenix, uh, there is this part in which Harry Potter is believed people think he is telling lies. Particularly this one professor, her name is Professor Umbridge. She turns out to be a very bad character, okay? She's not a good lady. And uh, she thinks Harry Potter is telling lies. And so she tells him, you're going to sit down and you're going to write, I must not tell lies, I must not tell lies, I must not tell lies, over and over and over again with a pen that's going to draw on your blood until it shows up on your hand. And although this sounds like really horrible punishment on the onset, right, we would never wish this on our worst enemy, don't we do this to ourselves literally all the time? We have a moment of anger, and instead of focusing on what we should do, instead we wallow in a moment of self-deprecation reciting over and over again, "I I must not get angry, I must not get angry, I must not get angry, I must not get angry. In the words of Dallas Willard, we tend to focus more on our sin management than we focus on our transformation. Paul goes on to say later in verse 12 through 14, and I won't completely steal Alex's thunder because that's what you're preaching on next week, but uh, to say don't focus on the old clothes is to say I'm going to focus on the new ones. The next time you feel frustration or bitterness towards someone... Maybe instead of focusing on those negative emotions, we work to think about the person God has created them to be. We start taking steps towards loving them, even when we just don't feel like it in our spirit. Slowly but surely, you'll start to realize that your frustration turns to patience and your bitterness turns toward forgiveness of that person. The next time you find yourself lusting after a person, taking that second glance, as Alex talked about in our sermon series on the Mount, what would it look like for instead of you to be beating yourself up over and over and over again, for you to begin to imagine what God may want for that person's life? What would it look like for you to begin thinking, what visions does God have for their future? What dreams does He have? What is he wanting to do in their life? And slowly but surely, you will stop seeing them as a commodity and you will start seeing them as an image bearer of Jesus Christ. See, we need to focus much more on our new clothes than on the old ones. The third and final reason why transformation feels so difficult is because we tend to lack the long view. And worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me, You know, generally speaking, myself especially included, we tend to be a pretty impatient bunch. Uh, My dad will actually be with us in a couple weeks, and you can ask him, like, growing up as a child, the only thing I could be described as is a bull in the china closet. Like, oh my goodness, my level of patience is so low. And I tend to think, as human beings, we're kind of all a little bit like that, right? But what's really interesting about not just our spiritual transformation and growth, but just about the way in which human beings learn is we tend to learn really, really, really slowly. In Malcolm Gladwell's 2008 book, Outliers, The Story of Success, he explains that in order to become an expert in anything, you have to spend at least 10,000 hours practicing that particular skill. That's 20 hours every week for 10 years. I don't know that I've ever spent that much time doing anything. It's like, wow, okay. Right? 10,000 hours. What would it look like for us to apply the 10,000 hour rule to our spiritual formation. Could it be that that transition from our old clothes into our new ones doesn't just take a day, doesn't take a week, doesn't take a month, doesn't take a year, but maybe it takes a lifetime. What a spiritual transformation or spiritual formation just simply looks like putting one step in front of of, of the other for a lifetime of walking there's a pastor and author who I already quoted earlier, who I really respect. He wrote a book called Live No Lies. And if you've really been enjoying this sermon series, I would suggest that you read it because it's really all about the lies that we confront in our world today and how that is the main um, aspect of spiritual warfare that's in our modern time period. And he does a really good job unpacking not only how we identify those lies, but how we work to address them through our spiritual warfare in Jesus. And he takes some time uh, towards the end of about halfway through the book to talk about what he calls taking the long view. And so I'm going to read a portion of this book. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but bear with me because I think it's a really beautiful depiction of what it looks like to develop a vision for your spiritual formation. He says this, as I write this chapter, I just came off a pretty rough week. I'm like, oh, thank goodness, even Pastor John Mark Homer has rough weeks. Uh, A few interpersonal things had happened that really stressed me out. And by the time my Sabbath rolled around, I was really, really feeling it. Similar to me. I had an adulthood long, excuse me, adulthood long struggle with anxiety that, while better than it's ever been, still wears its ugly head on a regular basis. And in that moment of discouragement, when I was literally thinking, "Will I ever mature past anxiety's hold on my soul?" I felt the Spirit remind me to take the long view. Here's John Mark Comer and peace in his twenties. Not much to look at still pretty anxious young man with a tortured sensitivity here's John Mark in peace in his 30s better but still quite a long ways to go 40s this is the current age group that John Mark finds himself 40s wow I see a noticeable uptick I definitely see some improvement but I've got a long road ahead of me But by the time I'm in my 60s, deep shalom, deep shalom, friends. Come what may, my soul is at peace with God. And so it's with that vision of my future self in mind, I go about the rest of my day. I'm practicing the way of Jesus as best I can and playing the long game. As my father frequently said, take the long view. I think several of us today need to be reminded to take the long view of ourselves, to have a vision for what our future selves could look like, even if it feels really impossible right now, to say what could those new clothes in Christ's kingdom fully look like? What could it look like for Jesus to slowly but surely begin to help me with this old habit or this thing that just continues to bother me over and over again? What could my life look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now in its full revelation in Christ's kingdom upon his return? What would it look like to establish a vision for our spiritual life right now? And this is our spiritual practice for this week. We end every week with a spiritual practice, something to do to live out what we have learned. And as we go into a time of confession, of communion, of worship, of prayer, I want you to begin crafting that vision in your mind, just like John Mark did, right? 20s, not doing so well. 30s, maybe I'm getting a little better, right? 40s, okay, I'm starting to maybe get on the right track. 60s, 70s, 80s, oh, deep shalom, right? Begin crafting that vision in your mind for what those new clothes could look like. And as you focus on those new clothes, I want you to consider writing it down sometime this week somewhere that you can revisit it often or post it on your wall because I think in revisiting that vision and continuously looking forward to our new clothes we'll find ourselves slowly but surely stopping focusing on our old clothes and remembering what it's like to live in the already but the not yet may Jesus as we focus on this vision of our new clothes Remove our old clothes and dress us once again anew. Let's take some time to pray together. Lord, uh, this sermon was really challenging for me this week. And I hope I'm not the only one that feels frustrated in my day-to-day inability to just learn, to don those new clothes, to get over it already, to live in this new kingdom. Jesus, today I need a fresh vision. We need a fresh vision of what those new clothes look like of what it looks like to walk and live in a kingdom that is fully devoted and in submission to you. Jesus, help us to see what those new clothes could look like. Give us a vision for our future selves. For not just ourselves that may be 30, 40 years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, but our future selves that are fully realized in you, Jesus.